Good evening. It is good to be together to worship God. Uh, Sunday evenings are so special. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're with us this evening. If you want to be open your Bibles, we'll be studying out of the little book of Nahum in the Old Testament, and you want to be finding your way there. Uh, I want to remind you of a few things. If you were not here this morning, we passed out a lot of information about homecoming that is one month away. And if you don't mind, if you're sitting on the end of a pew and there still remains either postcards or brochures, will you just pass those down? And if you were not here this morning and, and a postcard and a brochure comes by, take one of each and you can see a lot of the plans that are being made. And it is our hope and it is our prayer uh, that homecoming reminds all of us of how beautiful the Lord's church is and that we love her even more. It is our hope and our prayer that we remember how richly God has blessed him and we're grateful and we give him all the glory. It is our hope and prayer that people will be invited that maybe are not faithful right now. And so when we think about coming home, how awesome would it be if not just some guests come home and, and we have a good day visiting with them, but what about if some individuals come home who have fallen away uh, from the Lord's family and how wonderful will that be? And so really it's up to you. Uh, you know some individuals probably better than anybody else knows those particular individuals. And we want to encourage you to be identifying them in your mind and your heart, be praying about them, and then be encouraging them uh, to come home and be a part of that day. Also, we want to remind you that our Team VBS is in the morning, 9 o'clock to 12, and that goes through Thursday. So 6th through 12th graders and uh, plan on being here, and we can't wait to spend the morning with you. Also, I mentioned to you about the Brazil trip this morning. I said I'll give you a little information. I want to read to you a description of the team leader, Doug Williams, and what he said. Our team of 12 spent 10 incredible days working alongside the Fowlers to edify, strengthen, and grow the Lord's church in Belém. We built many wonderful relationships with the members and non-members as we worshiped together, served the homeless together, moved into the new worship facility, and hosted a four-day retreat for new and former Let's Talk Believe Bible readers. We experienced the baptism of our newest brother, but they really didn't because our newest brother was baptized this morning there. And uh, tomorrow in the e-messenger, we'll show you that picture, but it's awesome that out of that fruit of seeds that were planted and watered, another baptism this morning. But while they were there, they witnessed the baptism of the newest brother at that time and saw many others open their hearts to learn more about the true New Testament Christianity and the true living God. And so that is uh, encouraging, that is exciting, and uh, we're thankful that you guys went and worked on that trip and represented the Lord and shine as a light there, and let's continue to pray about that. Also, the stateside mission trip. Let me just give you some quick numbers. There's a lot of facts that we could give and a lot of appreciation we could throw out. We mentioned the leaders this morning, but here, if you can read those numbers off to the side, the reason there's two, uh, a, a blue and pink or whatever that is, uh, there, it's the two different congregations that we worked with and the door knocking and, and et cetera from there. But over to the right, you see the total number, about 7,766 doors were knocked. The result of that, there were 13 studies that actually took place and a lot more set up 
that hopefully will take place. Be praying about that. And then also there were three baptisms and we are so thankful for the opportunity to have gone. Really great, great congregations. You know, uh, they were smaller congregations, but so faithful, such, such good congregations of the Lord's church. Be praying for the Mercer Church of Christ and Lawrenceburg Church of Christ as they have a, a lot of follow-up to do. And they're already on it. We're already hearing good things back from the follow-up that they're doing. But it's just a lot for a small group of people to, to take on this all this follow-up. So do be praying for them. Also, Santino Har, uh, our brother that we love dearly, we're, we're uh, praying and, and just looking so forward to his wife and children to be able to, to come and be with him and, and to live with him here in the United States. And that's very much in progress. One of the things that there was a documentation about his marriage that had to be obtained there so that then and properly filed there so that it would be accepted by the United States and all that process, which is more than I know to even speak to you about. But he went over there to take care of that. A very, very important step in the process of his family coming over. While he was there, another tribal like civil war broke out. And, uh, and so he had to go in hiding. And for a few days, we were very concerned about his welfare. And then we found out that he was able to escape out. And now he's with his wife and children in a nearby country. And, and the good news is he was able to get the documentation that he needed in this particular step of the process. Now, there's still some more steps, but this was a very crucial step. And so glory be to God. We've been praying fervently about that. And uh, we're thankful that it appears that he's in a much safer situation at this time. Uh, but one to catch up with Santino and ask you to be praying for him and also for the reuniting of his wife and children uh, on a permanent basis as they one day could move here. Today we've been talking about warnings and I, I know in one sense it, it probably wouldn't be if you made a list of top 10 things that you'd like to study, you probably wouldn't say, I like to study about the severity of God. I love to study about when God gives a stern warning and, and in a sense he says, not only am I going to make this warning, I'm telling you I mean it. But yet God does that many times throughout the scripture. And he even calls some of these warnings. He relates the word palal or he relates that word marvelous or that word extraordinary along with his warnings to say, I'm heavily and actively involved in punishing sin. And if you want to step over on the other side, leave him and join the enemy. He says, I'm actively engaged with the enemy. I don't know if that sends a cold chill down your spine, but it probably ought to send a cold chill down all of our spine. Now the almighty God, as powerful as he is, to very straightforward, tell us, if you want to join forces with the other side, he, his fury, his wrath will destroy you. I know it's not a popular stance in Christian, using loose terms here, Christianity in America today. But that's the goodness and the severity of God that is revealed over and over in Scripture. And so we think about warnings. You know, I, just growing up in elementary school and junior high, uh, if I were to say to you warnings and someone crying out warnings, I wonder how many of you would join me and say, I just think about Paul Revere. You know, I, I think about when, when the, the, the British were, were leaving and coming down to Concord, they were leaving Boston, they're coming down. And, and you remember that there were a few different writers that knew the Minutemen had to be warned. They had to be awakened. 
They had to be enlightened. Hey, the enemy is coming. We've got to do something. And, and I really don't know for sure if it's what he cried out, but you know, we grew up studying in history that he just rode his horse through the night and, and crying out, the British are coming, the British are coming. And the next morning they were prepared and the shot that was heard around the world began the American Revolution. They were warned and they took heed. They listened to the warning. Listen, God doesn't give us warnings because he wants to be our enemy. He gives us warning because he wants us to take heed. He wants us to listen and obey and stand on his side. And so when we think about marvelous warnings, this morning we mentioned Pokemon, but let's think about even Nahum at this time that believe it or not is far more important. When we look at the book of Nahum, and if you haven't been finding your way there, I, I just want to quickly remind you, this is one of the 12 minor prophets. And I'll be honest with you, I hate the fact that we call them minor prophets. God doesn't call them minor prophets. And, and I think that it reveals in a lot of people's mind that some way they were of lesser importance. Their work was as important as any prophet in the scriptures but they were considered, these books are considered minor prophets because their writings are so very short. Just like when you look down in the Bible, you see it's only three chapters. It's only about 60 verses. It's a short writing. And we look on this next screen, we see these in, in what's believed to be possibly the chronological order. And, and just to get it in your mind, notice that those that, that prophesied to the northern kingdom, to Israel, we see them listed. And you notice that Jonah is one of those. But then you see right in the middle of, in, of a possible chronological order, there of the prophets of Judah was Nahum speaking to Judah, but he's speaking to them about Nineveh. And then because of how we're going to close tonight, I just want you to take notice and notice Sephaniah there at the very bottom of the prophets. And if this is in chronological order properly, he was one of the last writers and he's actually going to write again about what the Babylonians are going to do even to Nineveh. And it is quite revealing. So with that in mind, you remember we talked about this morning that the reason if we're going to do a study on warnings and a study on God warning against his judgment, Nahum is a powerful study because when you open the book, he immediately jumps into it. Literally, you have the first verse just saying, hey, this is, this is what this is. And then when you say, okay, what is it? The very first line, look at this, is God saying, I'm jealous and I'm the Lord that will avenge and, and I'm furious and my vengeance is against my adversaries and I reserve wrath against them. And so immediately he identifies himself as one that if you want to join the other side, his wrath is going to be against you. Now, we noted this morning in the very next verse, in the third verse at the beginning of it, when he says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, that perhaps that slow to anger is linking to Jonah back 150 years prior when he went in and pled with these same people and they decided to repent. And so we see the long suffering of God exercised there. But now 150 years later, as Nahum speaks to them, they're not willing to repent at this point, And therefore, they're going to have the judgment of God. But we talked about the fact that, hey, what if you got a big bark and no bite? Well, that's not God. He can back up what he says. And so when we go to this next slide, look at the rest of verse three and going down verse four. Remember, we talked at length about this. So I'm just going to touch on it quickly to remind you. Remember... 
The Lord has his way in the whirlwind, in the storm, the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt and the heavens or the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Do you wanna go up against him? When's the last time you've ran and the clouds is what you kicked up because you were running across the sky? When's the last time you shook a mountain? When's the last time you melted a hill? Oh, it's so easy for Nineveh to think they were so bad because when you compared them to all the other forces on the earth in that particular day and time, they seemed to be some of the baddest people on earth. And God, in essence, through Nahum is saying, listen, I'm not scared of you at all. I can stand against you and I know who will win the battle every time against you. And so we mentioned the sixth verse with that very statement I just made to you. Who can stand before his indignation? As I study this, I can't help but think of Daniel, the second chapter. Remember he lists prophetically the great world empires that are going to exist. And he mentioned Babylon, and he mentioned the Mede and Persians, and he mentions Greece, and then he mentions Rome. And then in verse 44, he speaks about his kingdom. I hope you're a part of it tonight. He speaks about his kingdom, and he talks about all these other world kingdoms are going to be shaken and consumed. But his kingdom will never fail. Who can stand against God and his kingdom and succeed in destroying her? Do you realize there have been times in the past where where movements have been to destroy God or his people? And all of those groups or all of those nations that have established such a movement, you know where they are today? They're not in existence. And God and his people are still in existence. I don't know if if you hear that and say, wow, that's, that's amazing, but we ought to. When he says, who can stand before his indignation? And in one sense, what he's saying is, nobody is more powerful than God. So which side do you want to stand on? Do you want to be against his indignation and say, well, God, I'm not worried about being your enemy. I think I can handle it. It's like, do you realize even world empires couldn't handle the indignation of God? You think you? You think you are going to be fine standing as an enemy of God? And and I hope you're saying, well, I don't plan to stand as an enemy of God. But that's the warning that, that we see throughout Scripture, the reminder We need to know the goodness of God, but we also need to know the severity of God. So we read verse seven, Nahum one and seven. The Lord is good. We talked about this morning how he's fair and he's just and he's righteous. All of these things does not make him ungodly or unrighteous, but he's also a stronghold in the day of trouble. He is the strength. Nineveh is not the strength. Assyria is not the strength. He is the strength. And so what we want to do is join in that last phrase. He knows those who trust in him. Do you know him and do you trust in him? We spent a lot of time the last month 
studying about trusting and obeying God out of Hebrews 3 and 4. Do we trust in him? Why is it important to trust in him? Well, I think about the apostle of love when he wrote 1 John, the fourth chapter in verse 4. And notice what he says here. You are God. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that a beautiful thought, like when we think about who can stand against his indignation, and here we are as children of God, and we have God within us, and so the one within us is greater than the one who's in the world. But now let's flip that coin over and say, well, what if we leave the one who is within us? And what if we go back into the world? Well, we know that now we have left the one who is greater and we're standing in the world with the one that we know cannot overcome. And that's a sobering thought. When we add to that on the next slide, Romans the eighth chapter and verse 31, think about how Paul says it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So if we're on the side of God, there is no force, there's no power, there's no principality, there's no nation, there's no movement, there's no peer group, there is no one that can harm our soul as long as we stay with God. That is a beautiful and a powerful fact. If God is for us, who can be against us? But again, if we decide to leave God, we can't stand against God and succeed. And so with that, I remind you again of Nahum 1 and 7. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who trust in him. Let's be one who trusts in him. And so for the last few minutes tonight, I'd like for you to think with me of just a few descriptive terms of Nahum that perhaps would help us appreciate the close of this tragic story. First, let's think about the word Nineveh. Nineveh as a city has its foundation all the way back in Genesis, the 10th chapter and verse 11. So it was an ancient, ancient city. But it had its heyday in the times that we're reading of now where for about 90, some scholars say maybe up to 98 years, she served as the capital city of Assyria. Uh, I wanted to read this quote because I thought many of our young men would appreciate it if I can find it uh, because several of us had the opportunity to, to sit in the living room of, uh, on one of our chisel trips, two of our chisel trips, and, and Dr. Jack Lewis, one of our scholars uh, within the Brotherhood, uh, and, and he's a, a, a wonderful older man at, at this time in his life, and this is what he said about Nineveh in his writings. He said, Nineveh saw men and nations as tools to be exploited to gratify the lust of conquest and commercialism. You see, those two terms point to what you continually learn about as you learn about Nineveh. They were all about brutal takeovers and they loved the idea that they were stronger and they loved the idea that they could bring immense pain, which in a sense would bring terror to future conquest. But they also love their riches. 
when they would go out into conquest, one historian said at the particular time Nahum is, is speaking here about Nineveh, that in recent years they had had three major conquests where they brought back city loads of gold and silver and riches. And, and the, the, the leaders had built immaculate and huge palaces of brick. They, they had built a city wall around Nineveh and, and it had at least five major gates. It had canals built into it. We're talking about a, a major, beautiful, heavily populated. You remember when Jonah spoke about it? Remember, he said that there was about 120,000 babes there. So that makes scholars believe that there very easily could have been a million people living in this city. Well, the reason they thought they were so strong was because the inner city had a wall that was primarily, just think of it, it wasn't a perfect square or rectangle, but think of it about three miles each direction and then about a mile and a half across. This wall was a hundred feet tall and wide enough for four chariots to ride abreast of each other. They thought they were so mighty that when we use the phrase invincible, they probably really did think that they were invincible. Nobody can challenge us. So if someone came back into them like Jonah did 150 years earlier and said, hey, you guys need to repent, they had reached a point in their time where their attitude was, we don't take anything off anybody. We don't listen to anybody. We're not going to bow down to anybody. And that's kind of how, who and how and what Nineveh had become. Now, when we talk about the Assyrian Empire, remember, they had already destroyed the northern kingdom. So now Judah is there and, you know, you, you look at your your heritage of, hey, we were one kingdom and, and then we became the northern and the southern. And, hey, the other half of us, they've already fallen at the horrific torture of these individuals. As a matter of fact, when we speak of the horrific torture, I know on this next slide it's not real clear, but you probably are glad that it's not clear because they told their stories through their artwork or their conquests. And, um, and this particular one is them skinning their enemies alive. On the next one, you, you see the, uh, a similar, if not the exact one on the right, but on the left, you see them impaling uh, their, their enemies on a stake. And another, another scholar gave a list. I thought I had that, maybe I don't, but he gave a list of ways that they enjoyed torturing and it, it talked about things like they would make the enemy grind the bones of their fellow man. They would tie them up and allow vultures to pluck out their eyes. They would literally pull their tongue out. They would decapitate them. They would impale them on stakes. They would skin them alive. Sometimes they would flay them as you would a fish, and it goes on and on. And so if you read Nahum, and you kind of get this idea where you say, wow, 
God did not hold back with these people like, like he was coming after them like he was big and mighty. Well, now you get kind of the idea why, in essence, what God was saying was, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not questioning whether or not if you and I stand toe to toe, who's going to win this battle? In your sin, you are an enemy of mine. You will be brought low. And wow, you talk about being brought low. They were brought low. And so that's what the book of Nahum is about. And, and we've already mentioned it's three chapters. It's a mixture of history and poetry together. And so it's a beautiful piece of writing. If you can look through the horror that is in it, it does warn of their fall. And most historians think around 612 BC that a joint venture of the Babylons and the Medes swept in and finally destroyed her. Many scholars have called this book Nineveh's Death Song. That's what the book is. It's about them dying. You don't know it yet, Nineveh. You think you're so beautiful. You think you're so strong. You think you're the city of cities. But your death song is in the background. Can you hear it? It's already starting to be played. And so what I'd like to do is just show you a few passages in Nahum that speak to that and then close with the rest of the story. Nahum 2 and 11. We can read several. And you know we don't have time to read several. So let's just do these. The lion was a sign of the king of the animal kingdom. And so they like to think of themselves being represented as lions. And so Nahum uses that in a sense against them. And notice what he says in Nahum 2 and 11. Where's the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked and the lioness and the lion cubs and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Oh, it's the idea that Nineveh's so strong and they just go out and, and they take down cities and they bring back the prey and, and they just sit in a lap of luxury. In other words, uh, the, the, the chain, the order here of, of survival of the fittest, Nineveh would say through the Assyrians, we are at the top of this chain. It's a good place to be. And read the very next verse, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. For just a moment, I want you to pause. And in about five minutes, we're going to sing a song of encouragement. And I'm not asking you tonight if you love God. I'm asking you tonight, is God against you? Because you've chosen to not walk with him. That's a sobering place to be. Sin separates us from God. Trust and obey is the way to move close to God. God, I trust you. And I'm going to do your will. And because of his grace and his mercy, he allows us to come back. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And then notice he uses war-like terms here. I'll burn your chariots in smoke. That was their, their powerful weaponry, was their chariots. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I'll cut your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall be heard. How long? No more. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're not going to take a big, beautiful, powerful city like this and you're saying you're going to annihilate this city out of existence? 
God says, you're listening to me. You're understanding it now. Look at the fifth verse. Nahum, the third chapter, verse five. He says again, behold, I'm against you. And he's going to lift their skirts over their face to show the nation your nakedness. He's going to bring them to shame. Skip down to verse seven. Nineveh, he's prophesying here. Nineveh is laid to waste. Now imagine that, imagine that wall that's a hundred feet high. Imagine these palaces. Imagine these elaborate canals. Imagine this sophisticated city that holds a million people. And God says, I'm going to do to you a work. It's going to be marvelous. People won't even know you ever lived there. Now, what kind of annihilation do you have to have to take a city of a million people? And later on, people don't even know there was a city there. Once the Babylonians conquered them, tore down their city, burned their city, took their spoils, it wasn't much time until the city began to just look like a mound and grass grew over it and animals slept on it. The mound was about 650 yards wide. One of the mounds, there's two mounds. The other, and, and the mound, one of the mounds is about a mile long. It's about 90 feet high. Just imagine a mound about a mile long. It is said that 200 years later, 10,000 foot soldiers marched across it and they had no idea that they were marching over the previous Nineveh. A little bit after that, Alexander the Great would go into battle and history says he had no idea that he was standing on Nineveh. As a matter of fact, because Jonah's story includes being in the belly of a fish for three days and then being vomited out alive and being told to go to Nineveh, but yet for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, nobody could find a city named Nineveh. And so they said, you know what? This is all a, this is all a fairy tale. Jonah really wasn't in a fish because there really wasn't a city of Nineveh. And it wasn't until 1845 that an archaeologist uncovered the city of Nineveh. And many of the high dollar for their day and time, for our day and time, treasures are especially gathered in British museums. And so finally... Individual said, maybe there is something to the story of Jonah. You see, a lot of people live by sight and not by faith. Those of us that believe the holy word of God said, you know what? I believe Jonah was in a fish. And I believe the city of Nineveh existed. And I know by faith what happened to the city of Nineveh. They decided not to hear the warnings of God. And even though they thought of themselves of being so bad... God says, I can not only destroy you, I can make it so people didn't even know that your city was there. I didn't put this on a slide because I was hoping you'd turn to it, okay? If you're in, in Nahum, go over just a page or two in your Bible to Zephaniah. 
And we're going to close tonight by just reading a few verses in Zephaniah. And this is what he had to say about what was coming down the line for these people. Zephaniah, the second chapter, I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Zephaniah, the second chapter, verse 13, talking about God. He will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst. See, it became a mound. He prophesied. It's just going to become a place to graze. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold. For we will lay bare the cedar work. Now listen to this. And, and as we think about a city, I want you to think about your own life also. This is the rejoicing city. You hear what he's saying? This was the city. This was one you rejoiced in. Wow, look at this city that dwelt securely. Nothing can happen to us. Do you see how big our walls are? Do you know how strong we are? People are terrified of us. That said in her heart, I am it. Pride goes before fall. And there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation? a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. To the oppressing city, she has not, what? She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not, what? Trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. Tonight, have you drawn near to God? Tonight, do you trust God? Tonight, do you listen to God? Tonight, when God gives you correction and he gives you warning, do you say, thank you. Thank you, God, for the warning. I needed that. Or in pride, do you think, you can't mess with my life. Look at the health I have. Look at the job I have. Look at the house I live in. Look at the beautiful family I have. Rejoice in your city when your city is set at odds against God and there's not really anything to rejoice in because in the background is your death song. But when we take all that we are and surrender ourselves to God, Bring ourself to God and listen to his goodness and his severity. How blessed we are. Tonight, let's leave here as trusting, obeying, loving children of God. And if you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.